Welcome to the Revitalize Hope Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Cass Stevens. And today we have a special guest, Maggie. Maggie's going to share with us her lifelong struggle with depression. Maggie? Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm glad to be here. Without starting back at the beginning, where I would say I was born in a good mood, I'll skip right to adulthood. I've spent much of my adult life trying to understand the why behind my depression. There are days, well, and, you know, large spans of time, if you look at my life on paper, it's wonderful and happy. And I have days that show up where I have feelings of despair. And I've always wondered why. So that's, that is my story in a capsule. I've spent about 30 years trying to understand why I'm depressed. I'm asked often in these periods of depression, some that that lead to despair. Well, what's going on? What's wrong? What happened? And most of the time, the answer is uh, nothing. Uh, today's no different from yesterday, except yesterday I was content and happy. And today I woke up with a sense of dread. And um, people often often call that despair. So in my early early twenties, uh, maybe about twenty four, I sought the help of a counselor. And we talked about depression, and I tried an antidepressant for the first time. The issue I was dealing with was what is often called situational depression, but it felt like my response to the situation was harder than it needed to be or should be. So I was prescribed Prozac, I believe, was the first antidepressant I took. And that helped me, as I like to say, just get back to zero. Actually, Prozac created a better version of myself. And um, as someone who likes to know why, I did a lot of reading on the subject. And I remember the book Prozac Nation, and there were people who liked their personality better on Prozac. And I was one of those people. I had confidence. I was never down. I am a confident person, but I had had uber confidence uh, when I was taking Prozac. And I had a series of interviews during that time that led to a significant career change that changed my life in a great way. Uh, years later, as you know, medicine in the category improved, I started taking Lexapro and began the search for a lower, lower dose antidepressant. And over the past 30 years, I've tried a few times to stop taking them. And that has been unsuccessful on multiple occasions. I've made it several months, almost a year, and then the despair has returned, often without anything I could point to in my life that had changed. And I, another thing, I'm a person who asked why. First of all, I want to know why I'm depressed and then, you know, how to stop taking antidepressants. Do I need to take them for the rest of my life? And absent of going to have a, I believe it's called a SPECT scan. You may be familiar with Dr. Daniel Amen and the Amen Clinics. He has done about 200,000 of these scans, actually looking at the brain to understand why somebody who is depressed or maybe somebody who abuses alcohol or drugs has a brain that's different. And that helps him and his practice work toward a solution. So I haven't gone, I haven't gone through that process, but reading his book, I believe probably in 2007, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, started thinking about things I could do because, again, I've just been focused on the why. And I will share with you that I am a, a spiritual and religious 
person have a strong faith in God? One of the questions I've asked myself is, if I have faith, why am I depressed? Why can't I turn this over to God and wake up with a smile on my face and in my heart every day? And I have spent a lot of time praying and asking for relief. And I have been confounded when that hasn't happened. So um, one of the things I want to talk about today or share today, because this, this is a podcast about hope, but I've, I've learned a few things, some tools, tricks, if you will, or hacks. I know that's a popular thing to say now uh, of things that I do when I'm in a period of uh, deep depression. So, Maggie, you said you went to a therapist. How did you know that you needed to go see somebody? How did you feel the first time you went? That's a great question. A local hospital had a TV campaign going. It was for Charter Hospital. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And the message was, they talked about depression. You know, if you need help, get if you don't get help here, get help somewhere. And I thought, well, the way I'm feeling doesn't feel normal compared to my other friends who are my age. I believe I was 24 at the time. So I just picked up the phone and made the phone call because I'm an open-minded person. I read a lot. I'm, I'm open to trying new things and other ideas. And uh, a book written by Melody Beatty was popular at the time. It still is. It was Codependent No More came out in the 80s. And at the time, I was, I believe I was in a, a relationship where I practiced codependency. And that is really just trying to change someone else's behavior to make them into the person that I know they can be. That's definitely one of my character defects. So that all seemed like a good reason to make the phone call. And that particular relationship had just ended. And I was very, I was distraught and, and very sad. And um, so I made, I made the phone call. My therapist has, I've had the same therapist for 30 years. I've graduated from therapy many times. My therapist is uh, also a person of faith. So we had an immediate connection and she shared part of her personal story. So uh, you, Alan, you asked me how I felt. I felt like I was right where I needed to be. And I felt like I was sitting in a room with someone who would listen and also help me and just demystify this whole thing about depression. Because, you know, even in the, the late 80s and early 90s, it wasn't something that people talked about openly. There was certainly a lot of stigma around it. So I immediately felt comfortable and began a 30-year relationship that has been available to me with every major transition in my life. Wonderful. Glad you were able to find that on the first try. You spoke of codependency. Is that kind of your low point when you kind of got to your your bottom that you said, hey, I needed help? Because you said after that, you kind of, or was that just happened to be there at the time? That's another great question, Alan. I think it was the beginning of my awareness of a pattern. I'm a, I mentioned I was born in a good mood. I was born into this world as a people pleaser. have no idea why. The, the good side of that is I wake up most days with the desire to help other people. That's taken me down some rabbit holes, if you will, 
and I have a tendency to overfunction in any relationship because I just I love helping people. I don't want to call it we'll call it the dark side of that is that I know what's best for you. And something I used to say before therapy <laughs> was, oh, I wish I could trade places with you and fix your life because I know exactly what you need to do to feel better and be better. So that is textbook codependency. And my therapist helped me identify that. And that's one of the reasons I continue to check in with her because codependency has different faces and it shows up in different places and different situations. And as a person of faith, another thing I looked at was I have a desire to serve and let other people know that they're loved. But when you get ego involved and yourself, you know, if you start playing God and not listening to God, you can overreach. That has certainly, certainly been my experience. And so what happens, and this is, this helped me understand some of the why of depression, some of my depression episodes appeared after a long period of trying to solve a problem for someone else, trying to help someone else heal or getting really excited about a project that would help a group of people or a certain mission. And then when my mission was completed, I was just left with what's next. Or I functioned, especially in my early adult life, always functioned very well in a crisis. And I called myself a crisis manager, shared that label proudly. Uh, I see that for what it is now. It's a character defect. Although I am good at managing a crisis, I'm very careful to stay in my lane and take a look at what's my responsibility, what I can control. And also I take a look at whether or not my help is asked for. And if I were to go back and chart out my major depressive episodes, most of them have come after being in a situation that really encouraged my people pleasing and helping and overreaching. So that's an insight I just had. I'd really never even thought about that. I know that's something that I work on, but I really, until just this minute, had not made the connection between depression and over-functioning. So I appreciate you asking me that question. I learned something today. Going back to the depression, you've kind of battled it for a while, you know, and it comes and goes, you know, like, like for most people. What would you say to somebody that was looking for hope to get out of their current depressive state? I would say three things, Alan, and maybe four Something I've learned and that we all know is that humans are relational people. So the first thing I would encourage and the first thing I do when I'm feeling, when I wake up with despair, is I immediately get myself around some healthy people, people that I enjoy and that bring me joy. That's the first thing I do. I get out of my house and get out of my head. So that's a a tool. Something else I've learned through this process and trying to understand the why is what I put in my body and on my body really affects my brain health. I now look at depression as brain health. I think that what I eat, the amount of movement and exercise I get really affects how I feel. Sleep is also critical. So when I've had major depressive episodes, 
I've had insomnia. They often go together. A good night's sleep without a sleeping pill is really good, good medicine for depression. But it starts with other positive people. Be in community with people who understand me and really care about me. That's, I just go find them immediately. Um, I have a short list of people that I can talk to about this. Try not to overburden them. That's why I have a therapist uh, where I feel safe to talk about whatever's going on. And, and the last thing, and this is something I've been practicing for about the last nine weeks, because nine weeks ago, I was in a major depression that had lasted for several months. And I wanted to try something different. I tried all of my regular tools. I also have a very active prayer life. I was writing letters to God, asking for help. And I, I'm not much of a journaler, but I started keeping a journal again on the advice of my therapist. And the writing has changed just over, I think that was nine weeks ago. And the secret is self-talk. I've stopped talking about my depression and feeling despair. So I am not giving it energy today. And I'm doing every decision I make. Is it good for my brain? Is it bad for my brain? And at the end of the day, I ask myself what went well. And I'm totally ripping that off from Daniel Amen in a recent podcast of his. I've been practicing that for nine weeks. Nine weeks ago, I said, enough. And I scheduled an appointment with my therapist who was dealing with a family crisis of her own. So she wasn't available for five weeks. So what did I do? I reached out to one of my very good friends who I trust to share almost anything with. We had coffee and I made a decision right then that I was going to make a change. And it started with, for me, uh, it, it helps when I don't have any added sugar in my, my diet. And I, I eat bread occasionally, but I went cold turkey on no bread. I was like, those are two things I can do right now. So, and, but the most important was I'm not going to talk about my depression today and I'm going to see how that goes. And I noticed that my letters to God started being letters of gratitude just with that, that small change. So that's the most significant thing. And then I went to see my therapist. And by the time I got in to see her after she'd come back from about six weeks away, she said, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm fine now, but I didn't want to cancel my appointment. And I always love talking with her because I can be very entertaining. She's told me that. Um, she said, I was changing my neural pathways by not giving energy and so much thought to my depression. So that was a major aha moment. So I'm still practicing that today. Today, um, I had a, until late afternoon, I was by myself all day. And so I like to notice, because I'm a curious person, how I'm feeling. I started to hit a little slump uh, about lunchtime. So I went outside for a walk and went down to visit one of my neighbors. And we sat on the back porch, had a glass of water, got to pat a dog on the head, and I was ready for a productive afternoon. Okay, thank you. I've heard this several times throughout my life. They say when you're being grateful and giving gratitude, then your mind doesn't have time for other things, doesn't have time for the depression to, or the anxiety or any of the other issues to come in. So I'm glad you mentioned gratitude because that is a good tool to look at. 
what do you have as opposed to what do you not have? And so definitely appreciate that view. We dealt with kind of a depressive and some of the things that you would say, hey, what can bring me back to hope? Do you have any other sage advice for us today about hope in general or anything? I don't have any sage advice. I always have a lot of advice because, you know, I'm a people pleaser and a fixer. This is something I heard in a, from another friend. It's hard to fix your brain with your own brain. The help is outside of your head. It's your relationship with God. It's your friendships. It's the food you eat in community. It's the service you do in community. And as you mentioned, Alan, gratitude even gratitude for my depression takes me to a place of compassion, changes the way I look at the world and allows me to empathize with other people who may be suffering from not just depression, but from, from anything. Very well said. So Maggie, you've kind of mentioned a comment that you'd like to share about joy. So if you would, please go ahead and do that now. I want to talk about joy for just a minute, because as, as a person who's experienced some major depressive episodes, I don't want you to think that I've lived an unhappy, miserable life. I'm mo- a mostly very content person. I've experienced a lot of joy in my life. So it is possible and probably even likely that joyful people also have downtimes. So if, if that's you... That's okay. And the few people that I've let in and shared, you know, with about my depression are surprised because I'm a positive person. I love to help other people. I'll have a smile on my face no matter what kind of mood I'm in. And most of the time, that's authentic. And that goes back to your question earlier about therapy. In a a session with a therapist, that's when I can be my authentic self and just just share whatever I'm I'm feeling because most of what the world sees when they see me is, you know, a happy person ready to help. Yes, I'll I'll often say that, you know, you need someone to talk to, whether that's a therapist, a pastor, a friend, somebody that you can confide in. And uh that sometimes can make just somebody listening to you can make all the difference in the world. So just remember folks, you're not alone. Find somebody to talk to, even if it's a therapist, pastor, friend, whatever, talk your, your yourself through these things and practice gratitude on a regular basis. Uh, Thank you for joining us today and we'll see you next time.